If you have your um, Bible with you this morning, please do turn to John chapter 2. We're going to look at that passage uh, where Jesus cleanses the temple. In just a moment. It's interesting listening to those texts of Scripture, the one in Revelation where Jesus is addressing one of his churches, the church in Ephesus, which was a very strong, flourishing, fruitful church. And, uh, and he accuses them, or he makes this very strong adjustment, that you do all these things well. You're managing your religion really well. You don't tolerate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You toil, you labor under the sun. I see how hard you're working. Um, at this faith. It's right in the middle of that, though, where Jesus himself says, but I have this against you. You've left your first love. Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the things that you did at first, or else I'm going to come and take the lampstand out of its place. You will no longer be uh, my church. You can't be my church without loving me. You can't be my church without obeying this first and great commandment. As we think about the Passover celebration, this is a huge deal, right, in Israel's history. For 1,500 years, they've been celebrating this feast where, uh, where, where, where it commemorates God parting the Red Sea and delivering his people from destruction to himself for the sake of the world, this high watermark probably of the entire Old Testament. And it's to be remembered year after year after year after year that God took his people by the hand personally and led them out of slavery. This, in a sense, as Aubrey has been leading us through the the book of Exodus, and he has talked about this wedding ceremony that happens with this covenant that, that God forges with his people and, and blood is sprinkled and these different things happen. This is almost like the, the processional, right, that happens at the beginning of the wedding. The whole, the whole thing is kind of a wedding and, and Israel going through the Red Sea and being delivered and, and led by the hand to be joined to Yahweh. This is a, a huge moment and, and it's to be commemorated and remembered that we belong to God, that he has dwelled in our midst and we are his people and he is our God. This intimate union is to be remembered. But kind of like the book of Ephesus, that letter, or not the book, but that letter from Jesus, the message from Jesus to Ephesus in Revelation, as Jesus enters the temple, it, it, it appears that something's wrong. Like you're doing all these things, you're, you're observing this, this religious ceremony, but, and I acknowledge that, you know, all the things are here, all the elements are here, and, and somewhere behind all this scaffolding and, and crude distraction, there's some semblance of the Passover meal. Everyone's gathered for it, everyone's come here from all over the place to celebrate it, and they're making preparations, but... Something's missing, right? It, it echoes there of, of you've left your first love. Imagine if there was a wedding here in this room, which there have been many, right? You've probably been to one. I haven't because um, I'm new here. 
and probably, I, I guess, I never will be. Soon we'll be celebrating a wedding in our, in our new um, sanctuary. But, but think about a wedding that you've been to in this room, right? It's packed with people. There's flowers everywhere. People are dressed fairly nicely, uh, making a good effort to look their best. Um, and people have come from all over the country, maybe from other countries in the world, to be at this event, this joining of two people, which Malachi says is going to be joined by a third person. I, I've made you one with a portion of my own spirit. So there's this holy moment that we're all here gathered to observe and to celebrate and to acknowledge. What if the bride and the groom were in this room, and maybe the, the husband of the or the, the, the father and mother of the bride and the father and mother of the groom, what if those were the only seven people in here in addition to Aubrey? So Aubrey's going to do this wedding. You've got the bride and the groom. You've got their parents. Everyone else is out there in the lobby, and they're haggling over what gift that they're going to get for the bride and the groom. And, and it's this noise out there. And, and maybe the bride even leaves the ceremony in here for a minute to go out there and kind of pick out some patterns. Like, I like that flatware, but not that flatware. If you're going to get me this, get me that kind. And, and then comes back in like, <clears throat> that would be weird, right? It would be weird. And, and maybe if you're the father of the bride, so say, or the mother of the bride, you might be thinking, this is totally whack, um, everybody came all this way and there's this amazing thing happening here and everybody's missing it. The temple, as we come to John chapter 2, this, this event, which in Jesus' mind, the way that the first miracle is written in John's gospel, the, 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 the text immediately preceding this one is the wedding at Cana, where Jesus says, it's not my time yet. I'm not supposed to do anything yet. So in Jesus' mind, whatever happens here, this is the first thing he's planning to do, right, is this thing, this confrontation in, in, uh, in Jerusalem at the Passover. This is Jesus' uh, inauguration of public ministry. It's important to him that this happens. He comes to this Passover meal. He comes to this, I'm sorry, Passover celebration. And in a sense, he restores the temple. The temple, like that wedding that we just kind of imagined, has been completely obscured. This communion with God, who's the centerpiece of the Passover. His power, his love, his deliverance, his purpose, his faithfulness. He's the centerpiece of the Passover to be remembered every year. And he's been completely obscured. The worship was distracted and derailed by this noisy, bustling, filthy commerce. The commerce of convenience. Come and buy your lamb here at the temple instead of bringing one from wherever you live. Um, and there's a whole lot that we could say there. there. It was somewhat rigged. So really, you by, by now had to buy your lamb there. Because if you brought a lamb from home like it was prescribed in the Old Testament, probably it wouldn't pass inspection and you'd have to buy one anyway. So 
people pretty much came to the Passover needing to bring something with them for this sacrifice. And by now, the system was that you pretty much had to buy it there at the temple. Probably even if you bought it outside the temple and brought it in, like no outside food and drinks, you know, it would get like, no, you need to buy one from us. So it was rigged. You had to get money changed because there was the temple tax that you had to pay at this time every year for every male in your family. And so if you're coming from some far-reaching place and you've traveled all this way, just like in the airport if you're traveling internationally, they had to change money. So it was there, the system was there, like scaffolding, to support and enable the celebration of the Passover in the way that the celebration of the Passover had kind of evolved or devolved. And in the way that it had changed and, and morphed over the years, um, communion with God, this remembrance of God's deliverance and the Passover, you can kind of feel how it's getting more and more buried in the noise around it. The oxen and sheep and pigeons for sale, the money changers to convert these currencies. Where is God in all of this? Where are prayers of contrition? Where is an excited gathering into this temple to acknowledge that God has brought us here to this place and delivered us safely to the promised land and established us? Where are sincere appeals for peace or real conversation with God? So Jesus comes to restore this. It's interesting to note John is the only gospel writer that, where Jesus is identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so it's, it's this Passover lamb who enters the temple at the beginning of his ministry, before he's even called that. He'll get called that in a couple of chapters. Before he's even identified that way, the Passover lamb enters the temple and observes the way that this Passover is being observed, the way that this Passover is being celebrated. And you can start to pick up on the urgency of this good shepherd who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Perhaps as he observes this Passover and thinks, if you're missing this Passover, if you've become so callous to the point of this Passover, you're going to miss this Passover. You're going to miss the point of it all. This Passover, the parting of the Red Sea and the deliverance from Egypt was just foreshadowing how I am going to come in the flesh. God is going to come in the flesh to deliver you ultimately from every um, ailment, from every sin, from every obstacle, and bring you all the way back home to God. At the end of Jesus' ministry, it's not the Red Sea that will be parted, but the the, the curtain in the temple torn from top to bottom so that his people can process to him directly without any spot or wrinkle or stain and stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy forever to take a seat at his table and pull up a chair and enjoy fellowship him with him unbroken forever. This Passover lamb this one who will be slain enters the tabernacle, sees all the other lambs, sees all the other oxen, sees all the other pigeons, sees all this other commerce, and sees you're not worshiping God. You're not acknowledging God. How will this be in three years' time? 
So Jesus restores the temple by purging this unsanctioned, completely inappropriate makeshift marketplace from its presence. And the zeal of Jesus was driven, as we read it, by his heart as a good shepherd. If you're missing this, you will miss my Passover. John's telling of this as, as you read it, as you heard it read, it, it eliminates or it, it excludes a lot of the stuff that's, that's um, said in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In those three Gospels, there's this kind of nuance of um, you've turned this house into a den of thieves. Like it's unfair how you're doing the, the trading. It's unfair how you're trading the money and things like that. That's not here. Here, the weight of it is this, is, this does, just does not belong here. And so we see that Jesus is jealous and urgent that his people can clean this scaffolding out so that they can see and worship God. So Jesus restores the temple, but most importantly here, and half of the time is spent, if you look at the passage, this whole second paragraph is spent in Jesus answering this question or this demand by um, the authorities who ask, what sign do you show us that you can do this? You just made um, some kind of like um, shepherding uh, whip and, and now you're using it to drive oxen and sheep and all these animals out. That's not intrinsically violent, by the way. It seems like it because you see the word whip and you think, good grief. Um, that sounds really crazy. But how else are you going to move an ox, right? Hey, come here. Come on. Let's go. Time to go. Like, so Jesus like, does what you need to do if you're trying to move a lot of really big animals in a hurry. And so he does. He gets them out of there. It's decisive. Um, it's not violent. It's just like efficient. Um, and so he does this thing very decisively. And the authorities are like, who are you to do this? How can you do this? You're totally turning the Passover upside down. And actually, and show us a sign. Show us your badge. By what authority do you do this? Or in, in the words of John, um, what sign do you show? And Jesus here says something that's, again, only located in the cleansing of the temple story in John's gospel. But this is where Jesus says this familiar phrase that does occur in all the gospels, but in, in different contexts in the other three gospels. This is where Jesus plays this card of, destroy this temple in three days, and I will raise it up. This temple that's, being, that's been under construction for um, decades and decades and decades and still isn't finished yet, Jesus says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. This is one of those moments in John's gospel in the New Testament where the air gets sucked out of the room, where Jesus Christ inserts himself as the capstone of 1,500 years of covenant worship, 1,500 years of celebrating the Passover. Jesus here is beginning to replace the Passover. There's a lamb who's coming as the centerpiece of this feast, as the substance of this feast, which we pick up in all of the Gospels at the end when they celebrate this Passover meal together. And Jesus inserts himself into the language of it all. He inserts himself into the liturgy of it all. This is me. This is me. The bread is me. The blood is me. Or the wine is me. The lamb is me. It's all 
me. And now, from now on, whenever you gather to celebrate this feast, you're, you're coming not just to, um, to gather around me and to remember me, but, but you're going to, to be reminded and participate in this feast where our union is rekindled and, um, and renewed. This temple not made with hands has entered the temple made with hands. The seed of God's glory from the foundation of God's grace and the foundation of God's grace that's been this tabernacle over which his glory has dwelled all this time. Now the word has become flesh. God himself is here and he's coming to, in a sense, replace what has been all these years. Not to completely undo it, but to fulfill it. And to carry it forward in a new way. As Anglicans, in closing, you know, as any kind of Christian, as any kind of religious person, um, we have to be careful all the time that we don't slip into some kind of pattern that the Jewish people slipped into during this Passover feast. I'm not trying to make some one-to-one correlation. This is, a, this is a, an amazing thing that happens here um, in John's gospel. So I'm not trying to say, look, Jesus cleansed the temple then. How might he cleanse your temple? It's not like cute like that. But at the same time, I almost fell off the stage. <laughs> The sermon's over. <laughs> Get home safely. Got that out of the way. <laughs> um, so I'm not trying to make some one of those like um, awkward, arbitrary connections. But John's here scouring us, and, and doesn't Jesus come back to the Ephesians with something very similar a long time after this? And can't we see this in our own hearts? Not just with God, but in any intimate relationship. Isn't it easier to manage a relationship than it is to just show up and have a real connection? Isn't it easier to do that? Every time. Show me a way to manage this relationship. Um, instead of going through the pain and vulnerability and ongoing real intimacy, it's just easier. And, and if we can find a way to do that, we're going to gravitate toward trying to find ways to do that. The Ephesians did. You know, instead of loving you, instead of presenting myself to you as a living sacrifice and, and being real, and listening to you, and speaking to you, and seeking to connect with you, and, and be genuine with you. Right. Instead of having those conversations like David had that time where he said, search me and know me, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Instead of showing up for conversations like that, give me a checklist of things to do. And if I can do these checklists, then you can ask me how my relationship's going, and I can say, it's going great. Just like how my grass is cut and it's edged and my bushes are trimmed and look, it's all great. If we can reduce those intimate, difficult relationships down to ways that we can manage them satisfactorily, isn't that tempting? Like, and, and if you're married 
and you've been married for any length of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We come to this table every week to celebrate a Passover meal. We come to this table, some traditions only do this once a year. Um, and, it's a, and, it's, and it's a feast. It's a feast for us too. It's every week though. And, and so we need to be careful since we're celebrating this every week that we, it, we don't, it doesn't drop down in status to it's like singing an opening song or it's like um, doing this saying, doing this collect or like this is the crescendo of everything else that we do on Sunday morning. This is the point is for you to come to this table to see these lights lit that signify God's presence is here and to see the elements on the table and to know Jesus showed up. God showed up in the flesh so that that veil might be torn from top to bottom so that I might go through. This is the Passover that we're invited to every week to imagine a torn veil on the other side of this that we get to come through and pull up a chair and sit down with God himself and have real conversation with him. Not to grovel, not to try to mm, clean out our arteries, so to speak, but to sit down and have a real conversation. Thank you for bringing me here. Thank you for making a way for me. Everything that we do is toward that end. There's a baptismal font here when you walk in. There's not water in it, but we're working on it. But imagine if there was, right? But we come by it. Like, it's there structurally, architecturally, so that as you see this room, you walk past it on your way here. You have to. You walk past it on your way here to be reminded it's not on the basis of your goodness, it's not on the basis of your performance. It's not on the basis of your management of any relationship that you're here. It's on the basis of the fact that you were baptized into Christ, that you're in him, and that you died with him and have been raised with him. That's the basis. We see it in the processional cross as the, the cross comes forward in front of all of us, leading us to this place. Everything here draws us into this intimate relationship. And if there's something for us to glean um, at the beginning of this year and as, as Aubrey prepares to lead us through parables in the Gospel of Luke and later through um, one of the epistles that, that helps us to understand this series, it's going to help us be reminded and encouraged of what Christ has done for us and how he has made a way to bring us all the way back to God. It's good for us to read this passage to see Jesus' zeal, the zeal of a good shepherd who doesn't want us to miss it. And if nothing else, to say thank you, God, that we have this celebration of Passover each week. This Passover where we get to remember you did all this for us, and there's nothing lacking. There's nothing lacking. The veil doesn't have Velcro on it. It got torn from top to bottom, and it does not go back together. And we get to come and celebrate that each week. So as we continue to worship, let's turn our attention 
And let's turn our hearts, not just to manage a relationship by going through emotion, but to show up and to be able to, from the heart, give thanks to God and from the heart, receive what he's given us and what he's done for us to receive the blessing that he has for us at the end. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.